somebody once described it as, we have the word sustainable because we realized we were doing things that are unsustainable. Nobody ever used the word sustainable 70 years ago. It was just the way of life. And I think as hosts, we're going to do a great job of demonstrating that. Mazdar wasn't born yesterday. The Sharjah Conservation Center wasn't born yesterday. We've been doing this a long time, 10 plus years. I'm Tatiana Antonelli Abella, founder of Goombook, and you're listening to Forward Talks, Conversations That Matter. Welcome to the first episode of our new series, Climate Leaders Rising Up to COP28, in partnership with MasterCard. We'll share inspiring stories of sustainability leaders and climate champions driving impact from our region to the world. A special thanks to the Dubai Government Media Office for their support on this special series, which is also where we recorded my conversation with Sheikh Dr. Majid Sultan Al-Qasimi. Until 2021, Dr. Majid was the advisor to the minister regarding all things food and agriculture at the UAE's Ministry of Climate Change and Environment. He is now a founding partner at Soma Matter, where they develop food security and sustainability strategies and solutions for private sector and government. So thank you so much, Dr. Majid, for being here with us today. Um, we've known each other for quite some time. For the longest time. Yeah. There's very few people who know me as long as you have. So yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much. And by the way, 11 years ago, we were together on a, a panel in Sharjah, yeah. talking mm -hmm. about the illusions of going green. Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> I remember the title. That's, that is a while away. So for this new series, for us, it's it's really incredible to be hosting, you know, what we believe uh, are sustainability and climate leaders. Yeah. And and you definitely are, at least Thank for you. me, definitely you. your whole journey um, is incredible. And I would love for you to share it with our audience. I'm half German, half Himalati. So if you want to go right back to when it really started, I've had the opportunity to see the world from two different perspectives. Um, there's my Emalati side, where here in the UAE, we've had a lot of fast development, and at the same time, doing so much with what is, I don't want to say so little, but in an environment that isn't flush with natural resources. And then there's, when I used to go in the summer to Germany, understanding how a developed economy was doing things like recycling and reusing bottles, or just how they were treating waste uh, and then also nature and the respect for nature there as well. Not to say that we don't have that here, but just the way things were going about in day to day. In my time at school, I'd learned that I have a deep love for biology. And I was working at the Central Veterinary Research Laboratory in Dubai, um, where a family friend had sort of challenged me and said, well, you know, if you became a veterinarian, you could study all of the natural world and you'd be a doctor at it as well. I was one of the first Emiratis to graduate as a veterinarian, and I wanted to be able to build more of that thinking. Um, I was cognizant of, we'd had a lot of development in infrastructure, in logistics, but I hadn't seen or found enough people in the natural world and the environmental work. I started looking with a few places I knew, and eventually somebody said, work at the zoo, and you'll probably get more contact with that. I did that for a year and a half, and then I moved to the Environment Agency of Abu Dhabi. And that was my first real connection to leadership in this country where 
there was a clear mandate and a clear need to address you know, our, our environment, the species that we work with, the species that we can work with on conservation. Um, I think I'd finished about six years there when I moved to the Ministry of Climate Change and Environment. And within three months, I was asked not just to be director of animal health, but then to oversee the whole food sector. Again, this big picture is constantly amassing scope. And within the first year there, I approached Dr. Thani Azudi, who was the minister at the time, and I said, we need a food security agenda. So I worked with the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations. We brought some experts in, managed the team that developed the strategy. And it was in the middle of 2020 uh, when we're sat at home, really taking stock of our lives, where I realized that I'd built over the period of working on the food security strategy a long line of people who were asking me all the time, Majid, who do I go and speak to? Majid, what's going on? How do we do this? Who's doing that? That I realized I needed to be out in the private sector to be able to move more flexibly and deliver and support and deliver the value that had been amassed in my work. Uh, 2021, I resigned um, to both shock and also in very much support from Minister Dr. Behaif. Um, my thematics or my subjects are sustainability and food systems. And there was nobody else doing this. And I know there's nobody else doing this in the region. I think also a reason why I, I wanted you to be part of this uh, series is, and maybe this is a question people can ask you, is like, okay, you're doing food and uh, food mm -hmm. security and you're a vet and what, what has this to do with climate? Yeah, the joke, the inside joke at, at the company is, Everybody says, oh, you know, what do you do? I say, well, food, food systems and sustainability or food security and sustainability. And the joke is they are the same thing, right? <laughs> Climate change and the very challenge that the world faces today is a product of human activity. And one of the largest sectors of human activity is the generating of food globally. There are countries that are net exporters. There are countries that are net importers. And the UAE imports 90 to 95% of everything it consumes in terms of food. When we have so much human activity that involves carbon emissions through machinery, through industry, through electricity requirements for those activities, for um, water sourcing, for processing. I mean, typically what we do is we look at the value chain or the supply chain of anything, any product you're looking at on your plate, in your cup, whether it's the beans in your coffee or the sugar in your coffee, uh, don't have sugar in your coffee. The way I look at that and the way we at Soma look at that is we can look through that product into that whole journey of how food has come to your plate. And I think that's what we need to get people exercising more because we've, we've gotten to the point where we take a lot of this for granted. Food is just there. It's always been there and always will be there. That was until we had... COVID, and everybody woke up to the very reality of that the world can be disrupted by something like that. And for us as a consultancy and having done food security for so long, we endeavor to help people become a lot more resilient in their food systems, understand what government can do to help essentially create redundancy or protect population. And there's a lot to be done in any city or any country. So the tie together is climate change is very impacted by 
the food systems that we have. And there are many ways of doing things. There's the carbon heavy and the, the, the not so carbon heavy way of doing things. Um, and we simply were trying to educate and just trying to make sure that people know there are options. I think also um, when we talk about food and food systems, one big aspect which involves as private sector and government, also individuals, is, is waste, food mm -hmm. waste. So out of all the food produced worldwide, we waste a third. Yeah. A third. And sometimes in, in occasions such as Ramadan, it can yeah. even be more than that. Which is unfortunate. Which is unfortunate. But going back to climate, I, I would love for, for, for you to explain also the impact of, of, of and the relationship between food waste and emissions. This is and, and this is now coming out in the in the in the research as being a big place to solve for climate. So you have to imagine a field, right? You have a field of some crop, something you want to grow. You put a lot of water and a lot of machinery on that to grow, say, 100 units of that crop. What happens is from that crop field to the consumer, the journey of it going from the farm to the wholesaler, to the trader, to the processing, to the product, we're losing already in food loss never mind food waste, but food loss, the journey from the farm to the consumer, about one-third. Now we're going to put it on a plate, and people are only going to consume two-thirds of that. So one-third of that, what's left, goes into the bin. Right up until this point, the 100% effort you've put in is really only being utilized at less than 50%. And then... What happens with what's left is it gets dumped in landfill. And all the carbon that you have invested in that starts to off-gas. You've basically got this methane interacting with our... And the word's not coming to me right now. The coffee's not <laughs> that layer. The ozone. The ozone. Thank you so much. <laughs> Where then you have global warming and climate. And, and there's this sort of layered effect. When you have that kind of inefficiency, if you can address that last half to begin with, all that food waste, there's so much carbon and energy that's been invested in it, it should be reutilized. The challenge is all of that requires education of the ecosystem, and the other half is implementation, people that are willing to take that on. There's some beautiful examples that have happened already in the market for things like that, um, but scaling is always the difficulty. I find one big challenge here is investment. Mm -hmm. um, we just did a thing a, this morning about yeah? investing. Yeah, yeah, go okay. on, let's go. I, I, I feel like the, the trend is to invest in very fancy technologies. Absolutely. And sometimes it's actually much more basic. There, there's, okay, there's a couple, couple issues with, with this investment perspective sometimes. I, I mean, first and foremost, it's hard to be able to sell a unicorn compost company, right? It's a good business, but it isn't going to be a tech unicorn. And I think people are a little bit starry-eyed when they're looking at investments because they want to make, you know, the multiples X returns because they want to hyper-grow a company. Whereas most people who have invested over long periods of time have just built good businesses that deliver solutions to, you know, the economy. So the first and foremost issue with investing in some of these low-tech not sexy technologies is, yeah, that's great, but I want more. The other challenge is when you are trying to invest in some of these technologies is we don't have an ecosystem that's ready or engaged on a political 
regulatory level, right? You say, cool, I want to invest in something that's creating compost and a high quality compost. Great. Well, one of the challenges of that is if you don't have the regulation that delineates compost from pure animal manure or other fertilizer additives, then everybody can't make a price distinction between what has been waste that's converted into value again versus synthetic products, which they themselves are generating more carbon. And being able to educate the market and the regulator on this is really important. And this morning, I was talking exactly to this point. Investment can only go so far, but if you're investing in a company that just cannot make it in a market because of regulation being the limiting factor, then all the money in the world isn't going to change that. We're very fortunate in this country to be very pro-development, but sometimes you need to be able to sit down with a regulator and help them understand the future of what this product is and how it delivers on their own strategies. Actually, now we are looking um, within our programs at a regenerative agriculture mm -hmm. uh, project, and it involves PhD students. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, these are people who research mm -hmm. for a long time. They have the data and um, they have the knowledge. Yep. They don't have the experience. It's once the research is done, it goes in a beautiful library, and then these people pursue maybe an academic career. Yeah. So what we are looking at now is to support these um, students and maybe now professors mm -hmm. into taking that research and taking it to life and yeah. maybe going into private sector and you know creating startups. But what you're talking about is really interesting because even if they do that, how do we work with the regulatory bodies? Mm -hmm. Well, one, that's what I do. <laughs> my, that's my day job. Um, but to your point where you have researchers who are going into academia and really should be trying to spin out technology companies, this is done in many other countries because they realize the mandate to take technology innovation to market is where their economy grows. And it's for a reason, it's also tax exempt in many countries. They're trying to really give it the opportunity to roll out. Here in the UAE, we've, in this region actually, we've, we've primarily been traders it's in our nature to find something that works and bring it and implement it or sell it on. So now to be doing our own research is great, but for most of these researchers, they're looking for stability. Starting a company is very risky business, right? True. Something I was tackling and, and struggling with at the ministry when I was there is I always see this as an arc of development where in the beginning you have very theoretical sort of on paper calculations and then you go to very applied research, which then that last bit is commercialization. And that last part of the arc is what we're hoping to help solve as well. How do you create enough of a incubating environment? I'm not saying start an incubator, but an incubating environment that says, great, if you have a technology and you are going to come in and try and start a company that does X, we're going to give you a special space where you can speak to regulators, communicate directly with them about what is and isn't possible with your technology and what you need from regulation. Because sometimes you'll have a ministry or you will have a, a municipality or you'll have some form of regulator, A, doesn't know what you're researching. B, you come and ask for something, they look at the paper and they go, no, you know, computer says no. Mm. So that's great. And then ultimately, you want to encourage progress, but you don't know how to build regulation around this new way of doing things. So being able to 
create a space, a safe space. And do, I do believe there is uh, something of that sort here at the PMO in Dubai, which is the Reg Lab. I think it could definitely be pushed more. It's all about talking. Like, like the, I mean, it's quite apt that we're on a podcast, but the idea is, and I said that this morning, somebody asked me, he's like, okay, so how do we deal with the regulators? What do we have to tell, tell them? And I said, okay, who in the room here is a regulator? And nobody put their hand up. And I was like, that is the first problem. Yeah. We need to be able to get touch time with them and speak to them and educate them and just create more awareness. That's a hard job, especially in the ministries and the local authorities, because they're spread thin. There's so much happening in this country at breakneck speed. We have COP coming. We have, you know, year of sustainability. I, I don't envy. I was there for 10 years in government. So we need to find a way to bring government and all of these technology providers or these, these researchers into a space where they can have a conversation, a productive conversation about how do we move the needle. When we come back, I'll talk to Dr. Majid about the importance of soil and his expectations from COP28. That's right after this short break. I wanted to take a minute and tell you about our partners, MasterCard, who helped make this podcast possible. Did you know that from the 1st of January 2028, all newly produced MasterCard plastic cards will be made from more sustainable materials? Many banks today are already offering sustainable MasterCard products, so you too can become a part of the movement by asking your bank for a sustainable card today. Thank you to MasterCard for their support of Forward Talks and Goombook. Welcome back. You're listening to a special series of Forward Talks, Climate Leaders Rising Up to COP28, with Sheikh Dr. Majid Sultan Al-Kasimi. One of the other topics I spoke to Dr. Majid about is food security and the challenge of feeding the world. First and foremost, we just mentioned food waste. There is a lot of food out there that is not going to the right places. A lot of, a lot of researchers say, we've got plenty of food. It's just not where it should be. And therein lies a challenge. We're talking about logistics. We're talking about you know, producer to market and infrastructure, mm -hmm. right? Okay, how can we solve for that? There are companies that you know as well as I do that are dealing with, cool, there's fruits and vegetables that are not going to market. Well, we need to find another market for them. Technology comes in and solves for that. Maybe not everybody's most exciting technology, but it is important in solving this global hunger issue. I always think about having the agriculture system less as a global hub and spoke and more of a disaggregated system. You have large scale systems that work better for certain things and they move products regionally. And then you have things around the corner, right? What can you grow in your own garden around the corner in the nearest rural area, in the nearest region? And you need to be bringing food closer to the market or the market needs to move closer to the food, right? This is what a lot of these technologies are trying to leverage to say, okay, it costs so much carbon and so much energy to grow lettuce on the other side of the world or tomatoes is usually, right? <laughs> and then we're going to fly this over or ship this over and then we're just going to dump it at scale in the market. Well, what if it could grow in the parking lot here or on our roof mm -hmm. and we got just enough? 
then you can stabilize markets. Prices become a lot more predictable. No, and, and also I think what is um, important to mention is that it's being done, right? If we look yes. at uh, Singapore, mm -hmm. uh, no land to actually yeah. grow food and suddenly they're growing food anywhere in their terraces, in their roof, in their yep. balconies. Um, they're engaging with all the community, with the elderly, with the students, and even with, you know, uh, for example, the prisoners instead, like mm -hmm. grow food in prisons. Um, so it, it definitely is, is it's possible. Is, it's possible. And I think another aspect of, of, of the food and the food waste is, and composting, we have no understanding of the importance of soil. Mm. And, and why soil needs to be healthy. And you remember uh, earlier this year, we had um, Safe Soil uh, yes. campaign, yeah, Sadhguru yeah, yeah, coming yeah. to the UAE, 10,000 people gathering around this, uh, this man and, and, and finally being blown away by this simple truth. Soil will save the world. Mm -hmm. It captures carbon. Yep. It has millions of organisms that are important for survival and for biodiversity. And, and, we are not using the food, the wasted food, to actually regenerate it. Yes. There was a, I have to find the paper. They found that already the food that we grow today is at, is at less than half the nutritional value of what it used to be. The fruit and vegetables our great-grandparents were ha eating on a regular basis are not what we're having today. One of the biggest sort of truisms for me is if you look at the way people have been speaking about the microbiome in our human gut and how that is linked to health, as a direct correlation with the soil health. Because back in the day, nobody needed probiotics. You just washed your, 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 your potatoes and your carrots and you ate them. And even if you had a few bugs in that, they'd populate your gut and you would have a symbiotic relationship with the soil. Right? Through agriculture, we and the soil are intimately connected. Now with global agriculture and widespread antibiotics and other products that are used to kill pests, we're finding that humans' health is starting to suffer because of what we're poisoning the soil with is residual in our food and it's poisoning our own biome. If you took all the humans away, right? the earth would continue to build soil. That's what, like unequivocal. Like let's not make ourselves so important that we you know, think it all works you know, only when we're there. Quite the opposite. They're, they're, we're misaligned with the earth. And that's the way I see it. That's why I love nature. There is no waste in nature. The big thing that inspired me to, to get and fall in love with biology as a subject is the food web. Uh, third grade, I'm looking at the teacher describe the food web. And it blew my mind that you could continually follow the arrows between all the species. There's grass, and the rabbit eats the grass, and then the fox eats the rabbit, or a falcon eats the rabbit. And when one of those dies, microorganisms break down this predator and feed that back in to the soil. And the worms and the microorganisms feed the grass, and you can keep going and going. And that is a wasteless system. Humans come in and they start messing with that, you know, balance. And for, for me, the big thing is being able to share that basic understanding at a global level. If you saw the world through that lens, the way I believe I do, you'd realize we have a lot more to do about creating more cycles and more balance. The soil is a key player in that web. 
If we can respect soil to the point that we're building soil, then food would be a nice byproduct. So my last question would be about COP28 yeah. coming to the UAE, and we're all really eager mm -hmm. to see this moment. What are your expectations, your wishes? What do you hope will come through? Two very particular, or maybe three. One, COP as an instrument, as a meeting of countries to negotiate climate action and the reporting thereof. My, my hope is that we have a COP of action and less a COP of talk and negotiation. I want to see results. I want to hear people that have achieved and are achieving hopes and dreams we've been doing for the last 10 years. Right? Everybody's still talking about, oh, we will and let's report. And No, no, guys, let's get the action. Let's make real commitments that we implement and follow up on implementation, less talking. The other thing is I'd love to see the UAE host with its strongest suit. I love how everybody thinks we're coming to action now. The UAE has always been an actor for the environment. I know it from my days at the Environment Agency and before that even. Just look at our great-grandparents, our leadership. Our rulers today lived in an environment where they had to be in complete harmony with the environment or else you didn't survive. And these are the people, see, somebody once described it as, we have the word sustainable because we realized we were doing things that are unsustainable. Nobody ever used the word sustainable 70 years ago. It was just the way of life. And I think as hosts, we're going to do a great job of demonstrating that. And I'd really like all the visitors to the UAE, all the, all the, all the countries that do come, private or public sector, to learn about how invested we are in. Everybody wants to paint the country as a petrochem state. Oh, we've got oil. Well, that was fortunate. But our leadership have been good stewards to make sure we use this. Mazdar wasn't born yesterday, right? The, the, the Sharjah Conservation Center wasn't born yesterday. We've been doing this a long time, 10 plus years, right? And I think the rest of the world's going to see that at this COP. And lastly, what I'd really, really like is some big agreement that kind of breaks the stereotype of this region. I believe that with a lot of oil production companies, there's always this, yeah, we got to cut oil out. Look, I am one for all the sustainable living in the world, but our whole economy, global economy, is still based very heavily in this. So let's make the agreement that pushes the needle on that industry to make the difference. If we can get that to happen, and I really hope His Excellency Sultan Jabber is the one to lead that charge, if we can make that call, that'll show the world that we're not here about platitudes and trying to make things, we are actually going to act and we're going to make sure everybody's in the boat with us, as it were. So yeah, I mean, I'm always very, very optimistic, uh, but even if we get a little bit of that, I'd be very happy and very proud. So Dr. Majid, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure and I could go on and on, but um, so I. I know we have limits and you have meetings. Yeah, right. <laughs> I haven't even looked. Oh, no, we're still good. Two minutes. Fantastic. <laughs> And uh, to the next one. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. Forward Talks is brought to you by Goombook in partnership with MasterCard. 
I'm Tatiana Antonelli Abella, and this episode was produced by Samantha Keruz, Janelle Lopez, Shiradi Say, and myself. See you again in two weeks. Bye.